Hello, and welcome to the Her and Him podcast. I'm Dale. And I am Tamara. And when two theologians get married, what you get is a podcast. Well, growing up going to Sunday school, there are a few answers that are always the right answer, right? Right. Like Jesus. Is the right answer to everything in Sunday school. Pray. Yes. Go to church. Mm-hmm. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. That is something that we are told we should do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're told we should do often. And so we want to talk about that because the Bible is a very large book. To many people, it's a very mysterious book and a very scary mm-hmm. book. And so we want to talk about what is the Bible? Why is it important? Can we trust it? What's in it? And how do I go about reading it and applying it to my life? And these seem like kind of basic questions, but for so many people, they're afraid to ask them because for that reason. Yeah, because they feel so basic in in terms of if you're a Christian, you should know the answers. I think people assume that. But these are not just questions you would know the answer to right away as soon as you come to saving faith in Jesus. And they're actually deep questions in terms of diving into the Bible itself. How did we get the Bible? Who wrote the Bible? Like you might get pieces of those answers along the way in Sunday school or just in church, but we thought it would be good to unpack those a little bit because we've actually had friends and listeners to this podcast ask us these questions. Right. Yeah. And for, I feel like for many Christians, they're at a point where they're like, I don't know how to read the Bible. And at this point, I'm too afraid to ask. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to ask. We'll just talk about it. Right. And full disclosure, this is a bit nerdy of us to take on this topic. I think you're going to find that there's lots of things that maybe you're not as interested in. So we hope we don't bore you too much. Uh, We are going to divide up these topics actually into two episodes Um, So the first half will certainly be a little bit more of the, I guess, text-heavy side of things and nerdy side of things, and the second episode will be a little bit more practical. Probably towards the tail end of the second episode. So stick with us, and we hope, even as nerdy as this podcast might become, we hope it's still engaging and worth you listening. So thanks for hanging out with us. Okay, here we go. Here's kind of our guiding principle where we start. We'll kind of start with this assumption and then we'll kind of journey down this path through a lot of different academic stuff and arguments and even kind of some apologetics just to arrive back at this same place, Hmm. but in a more informed manner. So we're going to take it on faith at the beginning and then we'll kind of circle back to it at the end, having felt that we that's an informed conviction that we have now. And so that comes out of 1 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. And these are the words of the Apostle Paul to his young friend Timothy. And he says, All scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that a servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So all scripture is God-breathed. And it is profitable. Yeah. And out of that, we have these sort of central truths or core convictions that come from the understanding of of this verse. And the way that the Bible really describes itself is what we're reading. So 
we're not even having to turn to a scholar to ask us what does the Bible mean or what's its purpose. The Bible actually informs us of that in these verses, which is super helpful. Right. So, but the Bible says what the Bible is and, and now we're going to kind of explore right. externally how that, that, how that truth is verifiable. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So our convictions are that the Bible is inspired. So literally it's God breathed. Yeah. Depending on the translation, the translation. Of, of first Timothy, it'll say either God breathed or inspired. And it, that's literally in the Greek word. It's a compound Greek word that means God breathed. And so it's really breathed out from God himself. Right. And so from that understanding, we would know that each biblical document would have two authors. It would have the human author who is physically writing it, penning it, uh, or speaking it to a scribe. And then you have the Holy Spirit. So these are not just man's words like as if Dale or I were to sit down right now and say we're going to write an additional book in the Bible like it doesn't work that way and that is because we can go back to scripture here and see that it's God breathed so God himself is the author of every single book in the Bible that we read Mm -hmm. so scripture is inspired and then we'd also affirm that it is infallible or inerrant and depending on who you're talking to, they'll say either say infallible or they'll say inerrant. Some people use those two terms interchangeably mm-hmm. and others make a distinction. I think infallible is more speaking to the fact that everything that the Bible says and affirms is true and it never says anything false. Whereas inerrancy says that, that the Bible in its original writings is free from any kind of error at all, whether it be grammatical, ideological, philosophical, scientific, mm-hmm. that there's there's no errors in those original writings. But as we know, and we'll discuss later, that later manuscripts have errors in those, and we don't have the original writings. So then that conversation of even down to grammatical inerrancy becomes kind of irrelevant because we don't have those documents anyways. Um, but infallible, certainly. That yes. there's nothing that the Bible says that is false. Or that contradicts itself. Right, that contradicts itself, that's incorrect, uh-huh. that can be proven to be false. There's nothing in the Bible. It's infallible. Like, what it says is true. Right. And our third conviction that we would like to just point out from the very beginning here is that the Bible is authoritative. And in simple terms, it would be the understanding that it guides everything we know about truth and morality. So everything we understand in our lives, even thousands of years removed from the original writings, are still true and they can still guide us in our everyday lives. And really that third conviction, it flows out of the first two. Right. If if God has breathed this out, if it's inspired by him, though it was written by a human author and a scribe, and often those two were kind of working together, uh, but even there's a third author in that, which mm-hmm. is the Holy Spirit, that it's infallible, that it says nothing that's false, that it teaches us morality, it teaches us truth, then if that's the case, then it's authoritative. Right. And really it is the supreme authority mm-hmm. in, in our lives that there's no other human 
leader or institution that we would look to before we would look to Scripture. And when we do submit to any leader or authority, we're doing so through the lens of what we know about Scripture. And so it is the ultimate authority in our lives that guides our morality, that guides our philosophy, that guides our our worldview, our understanding of the world in every sense of the word. Mm -hmm. And so those are the convictions that we start with. Those are the convictions that really I was brought up to believe uh, and was taught to accept from a very young age. But there's a lot of questions about those things, not to, to you know cast aspersions on those, but to have legitimate questions as to the veracity of whether the Bible is inspired, it's infallible, and it's completely authoritative in everything that it says. And one big question is whether we can trust that the Bible we have now is what the original said. Right. And in a short answer, the answer would be, Yes, but in a more <laughs> long and, and sort of academic or maybe a bit complicated, the answer to that question being yes is because of the study of these texts that's known as textual criticism. The reality is we do not have the original letters or the original manuscripts. So what a textual critic has to do is they're not criticizing the Bible and what it has to say. They're they're sitting down and they're criticizing. So I have qualms about this. <laughs> right. Well, I think, I mean, you hear the word critic and right. you automatically not, think. Yeah, they're not criticizing, but they're right. looking at it critically. Yes. And so what a textual critic does is they sit down with whatever manuscripts are in front of them. They have to weigh out the validity of it or they have to weigh out whether this is the best one that we currently have, is this the oldest one we currently have? Because you didn't have someone to verbally record it. What you had were people sitting down and making copies of a copy of a copy. And with that do come writing errors, scribal errors is what what they're called. And it's not as detrimental as you might think of like, oh no, there's errors in the copies. Uh, So we'll kind of go into that a bit further. But just as a textual critic, they're sitting down and looking at the manuscripts and trying to weigh out which one would be closest to the original one that was written. Yeah, and so just to step back and to put this into context, when we're talking about the Bible, we're not talking about your English leather-bound Bible with the fabric ribbon in it to keep your your pages—what do you call that? Bookmark. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> it's a bookmark. <laughs> With your fabric bookmark in there and your names embroidered on the front. What we're talking about is 66 individual documents. And in the New Testament, they are written all in Greek and not even modern Greek, like first century Greek, which is called Koine Greek. And the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and not modern Hebrew, but ancient Hebrew. And there's some parts of it that are written in Aramaic. And if you're looking at the Old Testament, they were written thousands of years before Jesus was born. And you're looking at the New Testament, and they were all written within about 50 to 80 years of his his birth and death. Mm -hmm. And so these documents are very old, and they're written in languages that are no longer spoken. And so what we're talking about with textual criticism is looking at different copies of these documents and trying to discern which one is closest to the original so that we can have confidence that the Bible we have now is the divinely inspired 
infallible, authoritative scripture that was written 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago Mm -hmm. at the beginning. And so that's really what textual criticism is seeking to do. And there's a couple of principles involved in that because they're looking at literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands of manuscripts. Mm -hmm. And this is unique to the Bible among any ancient document. There is literally... In terms of how many. Textual criticism is not unique to the Bible. Correct. But in terms of there being thousands of copies, that is unique because other ancient texts don't have as many copies. Right. So instead of looking at a dozen different copies or even 300 different copies. If we're talking about say Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, we have a few hundred copies of that, that they can compare with. We're talking about literally thousands and thousands and thousands of copies of these original texts. And so when that happens and they're all handwritten, there's going to be some variances. And so that's what textual criticism is seeking to reconcile. That sounds kind of scary, right? Right. And as we talk about that, though, what's important to note is that as we look at those thousands upon thousands upon thousands of manuscripts, that the variances within those manuscripts from one to the other, like 99% of them are like it said Jesus Christ instead of Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. Or they use this word that kind of sounded like that word. Or there was one preposition that was missing. And so nothing that is completely different or that changes the overall message of that text or that um, affects any essential doctrines of the faith that we have, Mm -hmm. they all confirm those things. But that being said, there are minor nuances. There are minor variances that end up being important in our interpretations of the scriptures. And so that's why scholars spend a lot of time and, you know, a lot of blood, sweat and tears trying to iron these things out and arguing over them so that we have the most accurate depiction of what the original actually said. Right. And that's also why you get revisions of translations, because sometimes we will find older manuscripts or we'll find a new group of manuscripts. I mean, the scrolls at Qumran, I think, were those the most recent ones? That were like a lot of them found in one place. I mean, I don't know if they're most recent, but they're certainly the, the, that was a watershed moment, I think, shortly after World War II, where they found just this stockpile of scrolls. Mm -hmm. That That were well preserved too. Mm -hmm. They were really well preserved in these caves. And because of that, you then had textual critics who had to go back and look at them. And then a whole translation committee had to go back and look at them and try and revise some of the English translations that we have now. And so that is why you see revisions of your English translations as well Mm -hmm. is sometimes because of new discoveries of manuscripts or even as they're continuing to critically look at manuscripts they're weighing out the changes that might need to be made. But I, I think it's really important to go back to what you had said is these variants are so minor. And I remember being in seminary in, I think it was my Hebrew class, not my Greek class, where we finally got into textual criticism. And what our professor had us do was actually fully translate from Hebrew into English. And then we actually had to look at some of the variants that were happening within that specific passage or you know set of verses and I remember thinking like wow this is going to be really cool to sit down with something and really wrestle with it and the assignment that we ended up 
having to figure out was whether or not the best manuscript read Lord or God. And that was that was the variant. That was the issue that I had to spend weeks working through because I had to go hours of study all to figure out whether it said Lord or it said God. And so I think it's important to affirm (laughs) and to understand that with like 80 percent accuracy. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But it's important to affirm that though Dale and I are certainly not textual critics in in any weighty sense of that word, but we've had some experience, I guess. I mean, with just a few projects in seminary, um, with a few language classes, but firsthand having seen, you know, the most difficult ones that our professor gave us was whether or not the text had said Lord or God. And so there is a lot of, I guess, trust and affirmation that even though we say there are variants, it is not whether or not Jesus came and rose from the dead and actually paid for our sin. Like they're not these heavy theological issues. They're usually pretty subtle and they don't change the meaning of that text. They don't change the way you would understand it in, in any sort of central doctrinal way. And that was one of the huge takeaways from that big discovery yes. of the, the scrolls at Qumran in Israel. And one of the main ones was the Isaiah scroll, where, you know, translators had thought, like, this is, we're, we're pretty sure this is what it says with some accuracy that we, we feel like, you know, we have it. And then when they discovered that scroll, they're like, oh, yep, this is what it said. Mm-hmm. And now we have a lot more evidence to back that up. So really every new discovery of manuscripts that's being made, whether they're hidden in the cave or like whatever it might be, uh, all of those are proving that what we have now in the text is what was written mm-hmm. when it was actually written through that author that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that's a really a testament to the work of God. And I understand we're looking at this from an academic way, but it really goes to show that God will preserve his word. And the fact that of, of almost any ancient text you look at, the Bible is probably, I'm not going to say it is the, because I'm not a hundred percent certain of that, but I know it's probably one of the most preserved ancient texts I would in say all of easily, history. It, it is, is right? The, the, the but there's no other. <laughs> so, You're like hedging like, I don't know, maybe there's another one, but well, no, I was there's like, maybe none. there's one out there and someone's going to call me out on this podcast because I didn't <laughs> I didn't discover that one. Because our audience is so adversarial towards us. <laughs> no, they're not. I'm sorry. But okay, so backtracking to what Dale said, of all the ancient texts and all the things that we read, I know that I had told Dale to use Shakespeare as an example, but he's right. It's not an ancient text, but it is an older text um, in in regards to what we're seeing now. And there's multiple copies and no one ever has any issues about what we're reading now, whether or not it was truly Shakespeare. Right. Uh, probably the better example would be Homer in the Iliad and the Odyssey because that was a little bit more ancient. Right. And we have, I think, between the two I think it was like 300. Volumes, it's about 300 copies uh, whether of the Iliad or the Odyssey and that's combined between the two works and there's no one that really disputes that when the high school students are forced to read the Iliad and the Odyssey whether or not they're actually reading 
uh, what was written and mm-hmm. whether it was actually written by Homer or it was you know just the story that he had told and it was written down by some unnamed author. That's a whole different discussion. But at the time of its writing, mm-hmm. we have no qualms of saying that, yeah, that's pretty much what we have. What we have in what it was. A couple thousand years later. Right. Yeah. And so really the point I was trying to make is that we can truly be certain that God has preserved his word. And you can see that whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, just going back and looking at it um, as a textual critic and seeing of any ancient text out there that we have available, it is the best and most well-preserved text that we have to this day. Yeah, and you can, uh, there are resources you can look at. Uh, There have been really big, boring books that you can read that uh, tell you all this. And so you can certainly do that. Or you can trust us that we've read those big, boring books and we can can tell you. Or at least parts of it. I'm sure Dale has read all of them. I am not going to lie. I'm probably have only read parts of those big, boring texts. You pick up a book on textual (laughs) criticism. Oh, man, it is... A snoozer. The idea sure. of it is really exciting. But the, the books. idea of sitting there and actually looking at variants and you get to translate them and weigh them out and which one is really closer to the original. That idea really excited me going into my textual criticism courses. But then when I was actually doing it and had to read it, I had to go back and read a few chapters multiple times because I probably fell asleep. Yeah, it was it's, rough. It's kind of like it's eating boring. a overcooked chicken breast. Like you know it's good for you, but you just feel like you're going to die. All that to be said, you can read them. We already read them and we're just telling <laughs> you, we're giving you the high-level view. Right. That <laughs> this is what it is. But we do want to talk a little bit more about the specifics of the textual critical process mm-hmm. because that's important because it almost seems like it would be simple enough. You say you have all these uh, thousands of manuscripts, just count them up. Which one says, you know, this version the most and majority wins because if it's the most manuscripts, mm-hmm. then that's obviously probably going to be the most accurate one. That seems to make sense. But there's this principle in textual criticism. And there, there are people that do subscribe to the majority rules. Oh, I didn't know that. Philosophy hmm. of textual criticism. Okay. But there are others. And this is where kind of the school we were brought up in and what we hold to be true that manuscripts ought to be weighed rather than counted. Yes. So you just don't count the, the pure number of manuscripts. Mm-hmm. You also look to the quality of manuscripts right? as to which ones you can trust. And so there are manuscripts that were written that as scholars have looked at them, they can tell that they can be uh, grouped into certain families from a certain region and from a certain time frame. And so there's the Alexandrian family, there's the Egyptian family, there's the eclectic family, which kind of like some of the leftovers. There's the Western <laughs> family, the Byzantine family, and the Caesarean family. And so there's these different families of documents that were likely coming from a, a same exemplar or a couple key exemplars. Mm-hmm. And an exemplar is just the original that you're going from, where... You would have one document and say, I'm here, and I would read it out, and there would be like 10 scribes who are writing it down as I'm dictating it. 
And so that's how they were transmitted because they didn't have a Xerox machine. They didn't have a duplicator. There was only humans that could write it. And there were these, these monks oftentimes that were very committed to this. Um, and, but that's why we can see those families. And something important when we're saying why one of the foundational principles of textual criticism is we want to weigh it and not count it is because let's say in one of these families, they were all going from the same text that they were starting with. So if Dale had this text and, you know, he was dictating it out loud for 20 of us to write down and then he went somewhere else and he had that same text and he was dictating it to another group of 40 people and then another group of 100 people, it's still that same original text. Right. So if there was an error in it, then I just duplicated that error You just error duplicated it mm-hmm. multiple times. So just because that region was able to duplicate that same text more times doesn't mean it's the closest one to the original. And that's why the principle of we weigh them and we don't count them comes in because of a situation like that. Yeah, and it's not even that they were able to duplicate it more times. It's that we have more more of those copies that are extant, that they are still in existence. And right. a lot of times that's because they're newer. Yes. And so the older copies are more likely to be accurate simply by the fact that there's there was, it's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. There's going to be mm-hmm. more errors in those later editions. Right. And even when it comes to preserving, I mean, the type of paper that was used in earlier copies didn't hold up as well as the type of paper that was used in later copies. So there's a lot of pieces that go into the importance of weighing it and not counting it. Right. And so you'll see textual criticism in your English Bible kind of very rarely, but there's certain key places where you'll see it, where maybe you're reading your Bible in the morning or whatever it might be, and you see a little footnote, and then you'll go down at the bottom, and it'll say, some manuscripts say that. And so there are certain instances where we have kind of a spectrum of certainty, I guess, where there's like, we have this group of manuscripts that say this, this group of manuscripts that say that, and they, uh, clearly it's, it's this. Other times where it's like, well, it's we're pretty sure it's this. Mm-hmm. And other times it's like, well, between this and that, flip a coin, I guess. It's pretty close. Um, and there, there's not only the manuscript evidence. That's kind of external evidence that they're using to make these determinations. There's also internal evidence between variances that will help us in understanding what the original actually said. And so I think there's a couple of key guidelines Usually it is the version that is shorter and more difficult to understand that is the right one. And the reason for that is because if someone is sitting down and copying and as they're copying it, they might try and use a longer word or explain it a little bit more or try and make some clarity out of it. And so that's why one of the the driving principles within textual criticism is if it's shorter and more difficult to read, that's probably the closest one to the original. Right, because over time it will get smoothed out. Yes. Where Have you ever uh, read something like as a text message or an email and there's like an error in it or a perceived error in it because you just can't understand it and you think like, oh, surely it can't say that. And so like your brain just corrects it. That's what would happen and because they would try to smooth it out as they're writing it. Mm-hmm. Other times, there would be um, like 
commentary notes they would put in the margins in one edition, and then that would end up in a later edition just as part of the text. And so that's why the shorter version is probably the closer to the original. And the one that's more difficult to understand is probably closer to the original because just natural working of your brain, you're going to try and smooth it out. And whether this was conscious or sometimes just unconscious Mm -hmm. on the the part of a scribe, it's what happens over time. And so scholars come together, large committees of them, people who have been studying these languages since before... Tamara and I were born and Mm -hmm. they argue over these things and they debate over these things and then they come up with a level of certainty um, and that's what ends up in in the text that we have and this is also this is an important point because I see this on Facebook all the time and I want to jump in but it's a way longer conversation that you can have on Facebook uh, when it comes to the argument of King James only translation where there's a lot of people that beat that drum they even call it the inspired translation which to me is like nails on a chalkboard. To you, like that probably doesn't right, bother because you. Because like... the inspired version was written in Hebrew, some in Aramaic, and in Greek. So English, I'm so sorry. Guys, <laughs> the word of God did not come down from heaven and inspired by the Holy Spirit to man in English. It didn't. And so to say any English translation is inspired is false. The only inspired text that we have were the original autographs, which we don't have, but they were written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, not in English. Yeah, and so King James is an interesting one. From a text-critical perspective, that's because its main source... So when you're making a translation into English or another common language, uh, you're using kind of a main source for your translation, and then you'll go to other sources for those those text-critical issues. Uh, to kind of look at those variances. But the main source that was used in the King James Version, and it was probably the best source that they had in in whatever it was. Was it the 1600s? 1611? I have no idea. I think it was 1611 when uh, King James was translated. And so what they used was a document called the Textus Receptus, which literally means the received text. And it was a Latin translation of the greek and hebrew so when you look at the old king james and they they did the best they had with the manuscripts they had at the time and it's a translation that is endured literally uh 400 years it's really good but when you're going from a translation of a translation it's not going to be the best text you have it was really good but it's not the best because it was translated from Greek into Latin and then Latin into English. Right. And when you do that, there's something that's lost. The other thing is that the Texas Receptus works off of the majority rules understanding of manuscripts. Mm. And so the Texas Receptus was a Latin document taken from the Greek documents from the Byzantine family, which was the majority rules. When more modern scholars who would weigh manuscripts rather than count them would go more with the Alexandrian family of manuscripts. And so there's that debate in there as well. Yes. And so that is the part of the podcast or one of the parts where I said we're going to get really nerdy and Dale just did that. 
Of course it would be Dale. But that's why it is really difficult to sit down and have a conversation with people who are King James only people. And they are usually very fiery and passionate. But not very well educated. Well, it's just hard because... I'm just saying. Yeah, I mean, that was a little that was a little rough. But it's hard to sit down and have that conversation because you really have to dive deep into understanding textual criticism. And so it's not as easy as saying it's the most well-known, oldest English Bible we have and say we have to stick to that forever and ever and ever because... We don't want anything new or different. And it's not to say any... And really, when we're talking about new, we're talking about old. Because since then, we've discovered more manuscripts that give us a better look. That's true. So the King James only debate is far more complicated and complex than I think most of those people in that camp want to have. I actually had a phone call with someone at the ministry that I currently work at who, you know, had yelled at our ministry for using anything other than that. And I tried, I genuinely just wanted to help her understand. And I remember her being very upset. And she's like, well, how do you know? You don't read Greek or Hebrew. And I was like, well, I'm like, I'm currently studying it. So I kind of understand this a little bit, sort of. Um, and she ended up just hanging up the phone. So <laughs> that's how that conversation the ended. Right you don't know Greek and Hebrew? Well, actually, Well, and I didn't want to feel I, I was just like in my second year of it. So I didn't feel really confident saying like, yes, I do. I only had but, like 600 hours of study so far. <laughs> but I was just thinking, oh, she just didn't know. And I thought I was being helpful, but it turns out I was just making her more upset. Um, but back to the point of the sort of the issue with King James Version and some of the struggle with a lot of other people who get upset about translations. And I will actually get friends or colleagues who send me articles of how the new NIV version has removed the word Jesus X amount of times and the word God this many times. And I usually don't go into those conversations with them because I have found that when I've tried, it ends up just becoming a disaster and ruining relationships. But when it comes to... It's like that verse in Proverbs, don't answer a fool according to their folly. Yeah. And really, like when I see those on social media, like it's so aggravating because they make certain translations of the Bible seem so malicious. Right. And and it's just super misleading. I think that's what frustrates me the most is it's so misleading because it's... It's not as easy as saying, well, they just removed Jesus because it goes back to the assignment that I had in Hebrew where the variance was Lord and God. And in Hebrew, the way that they do voweling is dots above the consonants and the difference between Lord and God is one dot. Yeah. And so it's very simple to see how that error was made when it's literally one dot on a page. And it's a completely different word. And so when people are mad about the removal of Jesus in, in a text, it's not actually the removal of Jesus. <laughs> like It's not like we're removing him from the Bible. It's just as we're going back and trying to look at the manuscripts, we're having to wrestle with these variants. And again, it doesn't change the meaning of that verse or that text you're looking at when you're seeing something that has a variant. And it doesn't change any core doctrines. <laughs> Yeah, and so next time we are going to talk more about 
translations, different translations, whether it's uh, King James, NASB, ESV, NIV, NLT, any other slew of consonants that you can put together. Right. Uh, we're going to talk about that. We are going to dive into some other... About how, how do we even know we have the right books in the Bible? Because you might have heard of the Apocrypha and some of the other books that are there. And the Catholic Church actually includes different books than the Christian Church. And I have actually received that question several times asking how do you know? Do you just get to choose whatever Bible you want is the Bible? And that's not exactly how it works. So we're going to just dive into the question of how did the Bible come about? The actual Bible that we hold in our hands, that is all 66 books bound into one, because that wasn't how it originally was. It was a lot of letters and documents that were not put together in one place. And so we'll, we'll answer that question of how that came about as well as the question of translations and how do you read your Bible? Yeah. So That's we're another gonna, big one. <laughs> yeah. So what we talked about a lot today was how do we know that the Bible we have now is the one that was actually written by the original authors. Mm-hmm. And next week we'll dive into, well, who cares what those people say anyways? How do we know that they have authority and that they were mm-hmm. inspired by the Holy Spirit as well as which translation of the Bible should I read? And then once I picked one, how on earth do I freaking read that thing? So we want to dive into all of that next week, and we hope we haven't bored you too much to sleep. If you were listening to this right before bedtime, we hope you are sleeping well. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Her and Him podcast. If you enjoyed hanging out with us, consider subscribing to the podcast to receive it automatically each week. We'd also love it if you head over to iTunes to leave us a rating and review. And be sure to come visit us at herandhim.com, where you'll find show notes for this episode, our blog, and other resources to help you experience the abundant life that Jesus promised to us. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Everyone wants to change the world. Capital Ministries is doing just that, one heart at a time by creating disciples of Jesus Christ among political leaders in the U.S. and foreign nations. For more than 25 years, founder Ralph Drawlinger has written Bible studies specifically for public servants. Study along with us and learn what the Bible says about capitalism, communism, abortion, same-sex marriage, and other contemporary issues. Subscribe and follow us at lifeaudio.com or search Capital Ministries on your favorite podcast platform.